Hello, Liturgy Guys listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to let you know about a little competition we're having on Twitter right now. I posted a picture of a brand new external hard drive that we purchased to store some online courses. And I wanted to come up with a clever name, but I thought you guys maybe could come up with a a clever name yourself. So if you go to our Twitter uh, page right now, you'll see this post of this picture and you can go in and, and submit what you think we should name this drive. And by next Friday, I will select a winner and that person will get their name labeled uh, and stuck to the external hard drive. Just a fun little game that we're playing. This week, we have a great episode for you. We are talking about social regeneration in the sacred liturgy. This is such a phenomenal conversation, especially since there's a lot of unrest right now and a lot of people are protesting right now for social justice issues. And I think people really need to understand what the liturgy has to do with social regeneration. So without further ado, episode two of season five of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. So we're, we uh, have a really amazing topic today, and I think it's also kind of uh, prudent for the things that are going on in our culture right now. But uh, this is another thing that we're going to talk about based off an article that you published in Adoramus, Chris. Uh, but you didn't write it. Dennis didn't write it. Um, it was written by Virgil Michael, who is a figure of the liturgical movement. In 1935. And yeah, so this is uh, this is like old news, but that is like it's so good that it's like always if you're an relevant. SJW, you know, or you know an SJW, you need to read this. Yeah, that's absolutely. social justice warrior so, for you, Chris. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> Wait, did you really, really not know? Oh well, there you go. Uh, but but this is important because we're talking about social regeneration, mm-hmm. which I assume you guys will explain mm-hmm. to me in a little bit. But um, so. Uh, why don't we, Chris, you can talk about the article and then Dennis can kind of introduce Virgil Michael before we get started. I think we should do it the other way. Why don't you talk about uh, who Virgil Michael is? Virgil Michael, M-I-C-H-E-L, not Virgil Michel, is, was a monk at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. And he died long ago, but he was, um, you know, kind of a monk in Minnesota, a regular guy. And then he went to study in Europe and fell in love with the liturgical movement from various places over there that were uh, starting to implement some of its ideas. He came back to America and he founded liturgical press, sometimes called Lit Press, also the journal Arate Fratris, now known as Worship, and also something called the Popular Liturgical Library, which... I guess everybody wants a popular liturgical library, not an unpopular liturgical library. But the point was he wanted people, the populace, to understand about the liturgy. And a lot of his writing was during the Depression. And he and people like Dorothy Day and others saw the relationship between liturgy and solving all the problems of the world. And so he wrote about it as as liturgy as the basis of social regeneration, not social justice in the sense we think like, oh, yeah, go out and shake your fists and demand your rights. If you were regenerated, then society would be put back together. And that's what this article is about. And, and part of this, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't this also come from some type of conversations that he had with Dorothy Day as well, who was very big into the, um, you know, Catholic social teaching and all of that? Yep. They knew each other. And there was a, a line of Catholic social teaching already um, at this point. You know, you have Rerum Novarum, which is Leo XIII's encyclical on, you know, capitalism and communism and social economic, you know, uh, justice according to the mind of the church. And so it took a generation for those things to settle in. And especially the liturgy folks were kind of seen as fussy people interested in ceremonial and so on. Virgil Michael brought them together and said, if you're going to restore the world, it better be on the grace of God. And the place you get the grace of God is the liturgy. And then it all came together. I'm very fascinated by this topic because again, like there's a lot of unrest in our country right now. And a lot of people are very angry about a lot of different things. There are so many things going on and people just, especially with social media, it just magnifies everyone's voices. And so there, there is a lot of unrest. And I think taking a dive into this topic and kind of understanding some of this will definitely begin to begin the process of healing and understanding. I hope so. Yeah, well, that's exactly the question. I mean, when you see what's going on in the world and all of the strife and angst and the upheaval and violence and sickness and death and everything, you think, why should there even be a – who cares about the liturgy at this point? Who cares if somebody's been invalidly baptized? Who cares if the mass attendance is at 20 – I mean, does any of this matter in the face of such you know, uh, social uh, distress out there? And this this article by Virgil Michael uh, addresses that is, I mean, the, the guy is uh, he I don't know. I wish I could write like Virgil Michael. It's just so clear and uh, concise, compact, substantive. It's it's really an excellent article. In fact, Jesse, you'll put a link to it, uh, won't you? At the, yeah, you should. Would you have hired him to write for Adoramus? <laughs> Heck yeah. yeah. He would have hired Chris to write for Adoramus. Yeah, I don't know if he would have hired you've, him. You, but, uh, you, well, he's awesome. You've hired him posthumously, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about this article first and then see if there's anything we might take from it for our current circumstances. And so he uh, he wrote this in uh, 1935 and he's talking about uh, the situation in 1935 and he identifies what he calls a double danger that is happening in the world in 1935. Dennis, I know you've read this. Can you... Uh, Jesse, what were the, the two principles, you kind of identified them uh, when you talked about uh, Rerum Navarum, the two principal dangers in the world at that time? Would this be, Chris, world uh, war? individualism and collectivism? Dennis, that would exactly be it. Now, Jesse, world war is about how this was going to erupt okay. between you know camps of uh, Western democracy founded upon uh, individualism or individual uh, responsibilities uh, to an extreme that would be individualism. And individualism would be my country is better than your country. And I don't think of you as part of my mystical body. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, uh, ideas of communism and socialism, uh, maybe forms of nationalism as well uh, on the other. These were the two isms that he saw and that, you know, the, the Pope of popes of his, uh, of his day uh, saw as well. These were the two principal overemphasis is that, on the one hand, you can you can um, kind of raise up the individual person or country, I suppose, uh, which is a good thing. The church loves individual rights and liberties and responsibilities, um, but you can do so to the detriment of the larger corpus, the larger social unit, the larger society, uh, and that's an error. 
Um, on the other hand, you can emphasize the importance and the rights of the group, the commune. Um, but if you do that and you trample upon to you end up trampling upon individual uh, liberties, well, then that's an error, too. And these are the two things that were kind of coming to a head in Wood in 1939. This all sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. <laughs> we put, let's put Jesse on the spot. Which yeah. one of these do you think the church kind of chooses, Jesse? Collectivism as the mystical body or individualism as members of the mystical body? Hmm. And this is and, and they have to do one or the other. And, the, and this is um, in the spirit of uh, the liturgical movement. Yeah. And Catholic teaching in general. Right. Because we care about the individual, but we also care about the common good. So are we stuck? What do we do? Well, I think the it, my assumption would be that the, the collective unified body of Christ is the aim um, and that the individual participation in thereof, I think is important, but what we always talk about, um, the unifying the body of Christ and we are the people unified as Christ's body. Mm -hmm. mm. What does Virgil Michael say, Chris? I think Virgil Michael would say that Jesse's kind of half right. What? That, I, should, I just, real, should I have said both? <laughs> <laughs> it's both. It's both. You so, guys you, tricked me and well, I, actually, and you let yourself there, be tricked. <laughs> he says, um, the, has, the church has always been the champion of a moderate form of individualism, right? We have to recognize individual rights, um, but they have to be brought together in this corporate worship and freedom and love and not forced and compelled by outside forces. Does that mean that I'm half right and half left? Oh. <laughs> so what uh, it, 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 it all comes down to the, the theology of the mystical body once again, doesn't it? That where you have uh, individual cells uh, retaining their dignity and integrity, but left to themselves, uh, wither and die. They come together and serve the good of the entire uh, body or corpus. And so you don't have to choose between these double dangers of 1935, rampant individualism or, you know, uh, oppressive socialism. You bring these two, the individual and the social together in what is the church is the mystical body of Christ. Right. And his complaint is that in modernity, probably the 18th century and, you know, 19th century Marxism, you, know, you get as a response to industrialism, uh, you have the, what sometimes are called the captains of industry or the robber barons or whatever, living high on the hog at the expense of people who are putting their life at risk. And he said the society had grown into a struggle for existence and survival of the fittest. Which you can imagine, um, if you don't have duties, he says man no longer had duties toward his fellow men. Well, if you don't see your workers or your family members or your neighbors as someone you look out for, then everybody becomes isolated individual. And then they rightly feel like, hey, what about us? Especially the, the people on the margins, you know, to quote Pope Francis, the poor, the um, oppressed, the people without education. And then they say, what about us? What about us? What about us? Did you, so you need to have a collective understanding of your society. Did you reference a Robert Barron? <laughs> Robert Barron. Oh, Robert Barron. <laughs> I was like, well, I was like, that doesn't sound like him, but man, maybe Dennis got in a fight with his friend. When you mentioned uh, Robert Barron, though, it made me think, I, I've heard him talk about this. I don't think he coined this term, but this uh, turn to the subject in the 16th and 17th centuries where you think um, 
at least uh, politically, there was this shift from the common good to the to the rights of the individual, or um, morally, uh, Immanuel Kant um, was that a categorical imperative mm-hmm. uh, that you would say always act in such a way that your individual maxim could become universally applicable. But the starting point was me, the individual, or Descartes in philosophy, where the ground of all knowledge isn't, um, you know, uh, consciousness means literally to know with others. But, you know, Bishop Barron will say, you go lock yourself in a room, which is what Descartes did, and make yourself the ground of all knowledge, whereas I think, therefore I am, it begins with the subject. Or Martin Luther with uh, theology, that you have sola scriptura, and you don't need this larger body. You know, you, it's between you and God. And so in all of these ways, there is this turn to the subject that, uh, you know, gave, you know, greater, um, I think, uh, integrity to the individual, which is a good thing. And we certainly appreciate this uh, as, as Americans, but to the detriment of kind of the larger society. And so this is it's a centuries old um, battle that was really coming to a head at the time yeah. of uh, in the 30s. If you take it to extremes and just say, well, society is individuals battling it out to see who comes out on top. Um, society can't be built on class warfare, right? That by definition, that leads to dissolution and destruction. And um, Virgil Michael calls it a kind of paganism, right? It's antithetical to Christian life as a corporate understanding of everybody being a member in the mystical body, which is interesting. But social justice warriors are rightly concerned about an individualism where people don't take care of the poor. Mm -hmm. And in the case of different groups, they have different histories that makes them uh, susceptible to an individualistic uh, model of society. And the answer is often socialism but what we're going to find out is that's got problems too, or an intense collectivism. Yeah, in, in some way, the the formula, the solution is this coming together of uh, the individual and the social. You've got to have both. Otherwise, the extremes are going to uh, lead to chaos and anarchy. <laughs> yeah, right? and you have a lot of kids, Chris, and you have a good number of kids too, Jesse. What if you let all the individual desires of your children, you're just like, well, they're all kids, they'll they'll just beat each other up until somebody comes out on top. Like that would not be a Christian understanding, right? You have to regulate. They didn't learn to work together. Uh, on the other hand, if you forbid any of them to um, develop their own individual talents and their individual, individual com- contributions, and you were totally controlling them all the time, that would be a problem too. So governing the many to freely and lovingly become the one is a really mm. big challenge. Yeah. It's kind of like a domestic, you've heard of the domestic church, it's kind of like the domestic mystical body then, maybe. Yeah, right. right. The whole national scale. Yeah. But what what Virgil Michael does, and Dennis, I think you're saying this at the beginning, is that what what he and others, you know, of his time, like Dorothy Day, you mentioned, um, you know, and, and this really was a particularly American thing that didn't seem to exist so much in Europe, the coming together of the liturgical apostolate and the liturgical movement with um, social questions seemed to be something that was particularly uh, American. And so, you know, he doesn't just bring up these double dangers. He's not just talking on a kind of political or cultural or social level. What he's going to do in this article is, and this was the point of why we're talking about it now and why we ran it in Adoramus, he's, he's going to associate it with the liturgical question as well. 
because you can't answer the social troubles and dangers on their own. They have have to find a solution in God. And the place where this comes to be displayed is when the mystical body uh, is its most visible and most animated and most alive. And that's when it joins together in the liturgy. So now he's the opposite of that. And he doesn't say it by name, but he talks about, I mean, this is 1935, right? So what's going on in Germany? The state is growing stronger, 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 collectivist. Everybody must be this. And then you wind up losing the individual rights. And at an extreme example, you get concentration camps, right? So this is not the same as we don't love each other. This is saying, uh, it's an exaggeration. Um, It will tend to enforce the kind of atheism when people, individual rights are, are not right. The answer, as Christian said, Jesus, as always, right. acts as Jesus, yeah. prays Jesus, form as Jesus. Well, as I would say Jesus. you're half right. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. What's the other half? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. okay. So the so the next place he's going to lead us in is where is Jesus acting most visibly? Where is Jesus praying most clearly in the world? If you wanted to go see it and hear it, where would you go? In the liturgy. In the liturgy. So he's what he then does then is he gives us some examples of how when the mystical body, which is the solution to the world's problems, when the mystical body comes to life in the liturgy, he gives examples of how the individual and the corpus come together in proper balance and proper association to retain an individual's uh, uh, dignity and serve the large the larger good. And the two examples I remember from this uh, article, Dennis, is the reception of Holy Communion and the offertory procession. Mm-hmm. You recall Say more, that? Chris. What's that? Say more, Chris. You intrigue me. I find <laughs> your ideas intriguing. He's, he says, when most people think they're going to communion, they find that as a very personal, individual, and intimate act, this relationship of receiving Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's not entirely untrue, but... It's not as if when 25 people go to receive Jesus individually and they go back to their pew, there's now 25 different Jesuses in the nave of the church. So that's not the Catholic teaching, is that through this action of Holy Communion, 25 individuals now become living cells of the one mystical body having, I don't know, in a certain way been received by Jesus in communion. And so this becomes then this model of the individual coming to life in the larger mystical body of Christ. So this gets this isn't just a, a theology of the church at this point or a, yeah, an ecclesial theology. It becomes ritualized and actualized and sacramentalized in real things that men and women and children do. Right. Same thing for the offertory. Everybody brings up their little gift. You know, when that basket passes around and I know, Chris, you've been big on not just signing up for the credit card uh, bill every month, automatically going to your parish, but pass the basket. Everybody puts their little bit in, and that's the many individuals being joined together to this one offering, just like the many members of the mystical body offer their offering uh, to the Father together. Yeah, again, another uh, – see, this is this is what the Mass and the Liturgy does, uh, is, it, is it takes the mystical body and puts it uh, before your very senses so you can learn from it. And he takes it a little further even to say that no mass is offered without prayers for the souls in purgatory. So they're part of that mystical body too, which is very interesting. And it's, I think this is the one where he talks about even confession, even a one-on-one personal, yeah, confession 
is an example of the mystical body at work because the prayer, the preconciliar prayers, the, the priest used to ask that the saints intercede for the person. I think it's still an option. And so uh, all the liturgical life of the church is, a, is an act of many people helping each other. Yeah. So what, I mean, in, in 2020, I don't know, I guess, I guess it's a debatable point. We don't have quite these same explicit dangers that he was talking about in 1935. I guess we still have, uh, you know, sort of an extreme individualism. I don't know if we have collectivism and <clears throat> socialism to the degree that was dangerous back then. Maybe we do. That's not quite my <laughs> feel. That's for a different podcast, I think. Yeah, with, with different uh, with different liturgy guys, too. Um, but I mean, when we think of the, is this same proposal that the liturgy is the basis for social regeneration, that it was in 1935, is it the same solution to the, to the problems that we have in 2020? Yeah. It, I mean, pretend Every, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. All right. Put on your Virgil Michael hat and write this article in 2020. Oh, well, what would he say? Are you asking me or Dennis? Yeah. Uh, any of you, uh, any of you, I mean, what, because uh, I think, I'm, I suspect you guys hear this. I mean, who cares about the liturgy now, <laughs> right? When, when, when you have uh, uh, riots in, uh, uh, in the cities and you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, coronavirus. The, the sacred liturgy in uh, Jesus Christ yeah. is the great unifier. So in, in times where we're focusing on the differences and we're talking about, you know, we and them and they and us. And they're doing that and we want this and we're not, nobody's listening to us and those people are not listening and there's lots of divisiveness. The sacred liturgy is the great unifier because that there's no discrimination in, in Jesus Christ. You know, he is for all, for everyone. And so I think if we, if we start with that concept, it can be not only unifying in principle and in philosophy, but also, as you guys have been mentioning for the last 20 minutes, it, it heals all of us so that we can be deified and transfigured through through Christ so that we can all be Christ for for others, but then also for our destination. Right. And, you know, we're, a lot of people have been talking Black Lives Matter about the legacy of slavery. Slavery is probably one of the peak individualistic moments, right? You're not a person. I own you. My will is dominated over yours. And you see how that leaves generations of wounds that we're still trying to deal with. So the question is, as a society, do we love our neighbors who need this love? Do we ignore our neighbors or do we push to collectivism and say the government will solve all your problems? Or do we go to individualism and say, fix yourself, you know, it's not my problem to say corporately, oh yeah, the hand hurts, the leg hurts, the head has to help the leg and the hand and the head all work together. And when the grace of God is operating in you, it heals your wounds and it also helps you be strengthened to help heal other people's wounds. And part of the practice of that is not just the grace of the Eucharist, but the actual doing. Standing next to someone in Mass and singing the same words, saying the same words, recognizing your corporate nature. Well, see, that, see that's the real <laughs> – that seems to me the, the real problem, though, is that too often then when we go to Mass, it's not kind of a, a formative school of individuals acting corporately. It's uh, individuals acting. <laughs> I think about, you know, the masses I've gone to over the last month or two and 
the people who are wearing masks are mad at the people who aren't wearing masks and the people who are receiving in the hand are mad at the people who are receiving on the tongue and the people who like this song uh, don't like the people who like that song. And it's not. And everybody rather than being kind of everybody's mad at cyclists for hogging the road. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. Cyclists have motorcyclists have equal rights. Um, No, it's lefties have equal rights, right? <laughs> I see what you did there. I like it. Um, so, I mean, the but the mass, I mean, for, for Virgil Michael's um, solution to, and it's not his, I mean, uh, the liturgy is the source of the true Christian spirit, and the true Christian spirit is necessary for social regeneration. So the conclusion is the liturgy is necessary for social regeneration. Bam. It's important that we get these liturgical questions right, and that they don't just be, you know, another type of expression of, individual versus social that's out in the world, but they become a true school of formation of individuals acting uh, corporately. Right. And remember, if you read Dorothy Day, she's she's talking about the communist protests of the 1930s. And there were a lot of them in the U.S. We don't really think about communism in the 30s. We think about it in the 50s. And she said many of their demands were just these people were protesting their wages, uh, different policies here and there, but the church wasn't giving them the answer. And so the communists we're showing up and saying, we'll help you, we'll help you, we'll help you. And so I think part of our challenge is to say, all right, when you go to Mass, not just do I get my spiritual vitamin pill at the end, but Father, I give to you and sacrifice to you as a member of this body my indifference toward the poor, the needy, the sick. Um, and to hold that in balance. Yeah, there are such things as institutionalized problems in society and the answer is not to make them worse. The answer is to make them better by loving your neighbor and doing that through the grace of the liturgy. Yeah. No, I think if the liturgy is going to be the answer to social regeneration, we have to do it right. We have to pray it rightly when we go there. And that requires mm-hmm. those awful virtues of uh, docility and humility and uh, uh, the rest. You, um, you could also attend the liturgical institute and, uh, you know, really learn all these things. Learn all of these things. Yeah. Well, Chris, hmm. Dennis, Jesse. Oh, sorry. I just was checking to make sure you guys were still online. <laughs> uh, should we answer a liturgy question? Yes. Let's do it. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, we have a question this week from... Well, Dennis, you have a question from somebody. Yes, two people asked me this question recently because we are here at Benedictine College and the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas has put this restriction on singing because of COVID, mostly because of the county orders. You know, you, you increase your breathing when you sing. It actually doubles the amount of air you exhale in order to sing. 
And so the question I got from some people organizing liturgy here, if liturgy is meant to be sung, but you can't have everybody sing, is it better if the cantor sings alone, like the entrance antiphon, and people don't respond? Or is it better that they have the words of the mass on their lips and speak them, even if they are meant to be sung and can't be sung? So the question is, do you have music when not everybody can sing it? Or do you have no music so that everybody can speak it? Which one would be better? And uh, I sort of teased it out a little bit by saying, well, the liturgy is meant to be sung by nature, and therefore it's better to have some music imperfectly celebrated than no music. But I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I'd say first you could say that both options are uh, licit. The juror makes clear that uh, the entrance chant can be sung entirely by the cantor or scola or entirely by the people. Ah, so it's ooh, not a matter of, you know, laicity or whatnot. Um, when you go back to the music on Sacram and those degrees of participation, you know, the they have these three different degrees and the singing the entrance of the, the, the chants at the entrance and the offertory and the communion are in, are in the third tier, the lowest tier. Are you giving me the third degree? Third mm-hmm. degree. So um, you've, you got two good things you want to have happen. In my opinion, I think the better is to sing the antiphon with the cantor alone. That, I think it's a better option. Good. I always like it when you and I agree, Chris. Yeah, yeah, whatever that's worth. And they do a lovely job here in the Abbey Church. They have some young guys with very nice voices, and they sing Adam Bartlett's propers a lot of the time. It's very nice. So I love having the music, even though I can't sing it back. I sing it sort of quietly yeah. under my mask. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Continue to listen you, to this podcast. Are you telling me you mask your singing? I do. Literally. Atchison County officials will be after me soon. Well, if your mask breaks, you know, you can just use masking tape. Oh. <laughs> Deadly silence. <laughs> that was a good one, guys. Come All right. On. Well, if you have a question, you no, can. No, 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 no. That's what? my job. That's oh, okay. my job. Gosh. If you have a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster. Colon. Tastes more than you do, <laughs> unfortunately for me. <laughs> or, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but Chris on every third Friday of every month reads all the star charts. So if you buy a star and name it after the question you have, he'll eventually come across it and uh, he'll be able to read it. That's a good one, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.